0: Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield Approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield Approval is a real game-changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop, but here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same, but if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win, and it's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, December 17th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. and On today's show, we'll talk about Robinhood's latest offering for consumers. We'll, of course, tap into Twitter, and we'll give you one to watch. But we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. Rory Karen is Head Analyst with Ireland-based Rubicoin, a maker of financial investment tools and apps, including Learn and Invest, which are designed to transform anyone into an informed, confident investor. On this week's Between Two Fools, Rory and I talked more about the evolving financial space across the pond, and the companies that he and his team see playing the biggest roles. So, Rory, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you all are doing over there at Rubicoin these days.
1: Uh, Hi, Jason. Yes. So um, I'm the head analyst at Rubicoin. And Rubicoin is a financial mobile based education company. And our goal is really to create a new generation of successful investors. Uh, We have two mobile apps available on both Apple and Android. Uh, Our first app, Learn, uh, is a free app. It's a collection of short lessons. It's really designed to bring someone from knowing nothing or having no experience in the stock market to having a basic understanding of it. And being able to start investing with confidence. Um, and what we really tried to do with that is to kind of summarize the teachings of some of the world's greatest investors into a format that's understandable to the novice investor. Uh, and we're looking really to impart kind of a common sense philosophy in terms of the kind of businesses people should be looking at to invest. And in. there's probably a lot of crossover between ourselves and the Motley Fool in that regard. You know, uh, we want people to invest in businesses that they understand, uh, perhaps that their customers are or have some connection with. Um, and we like businesses that got like passionate founding CEOs, talented managers, and uh, sustainable competitive advantages. And uh, of course, we want to highlight the importance of diversification and having a long term outlook that's not kind of driven by news headlines or short term volatility.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap, I would say, between <laughs> Rubicon and the Fool. I mean, it's it's worth mentioning again that I mean, of course, uh, the Motley Fool has an investment interest in Rubicon. We've been uh, we've been partners really for a number of years now, and and uh, you know, one of the more enjoyable parts of my week is us, you know, being able to do our stock chats um, to talk about what's going on over there on your side of the world and uh, what's going on over here. Now, in in regard to payments, I mean, this is this is the financial show for industry focus, and payments is a really big part of that world these days. And, uh, you know, we we know what the landscape looks like over here domestically. I thought it would be an interesting point to get our listeners a little bit more perspective of how things are looking on your side of the pond in the payment space. So, talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, you know, we've got the same big U.S. players over here as you guys have over there. You know, PayPal's obviously got a massive footstep online, and uh, Square just recently launched in the U.K., so we're kind of interested to see how that expansion is going to work out for them. Um, I suppose the real Irish success story so far has been a company called Stripe, and um, yes. they were founded by uh, two brothers about seven years ago. And um, their offices are just down the road from us. And uh, Stripe's offering was that you know, with seven lines of code, pretty much any startup could start taking payments. Uh, I think they're originally funded by Peter Thiel and Sequoia Capital, and now they're valued at about twenty billion dollars. Um, last I read, there's no IPO plans in place, uh, but it's a company in the payment space that you know, if you're invested in the payment space. It's a company you really should know about, and you should be keeping an eye on. Um, more, One of the more bigger changes in Europe recently has been the adoption of what's called the Payment Services Directive. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, legislation that's come across all EU countries with the aim of, of kind of leveling the playing field in terms of payments and banking, and moving to what's called open banking. So now consumers can authorize third parties to access their banking information, um, and even make payments on their behalf. So. You could arrange payments through kind of any third party you wish. Uh, you could, I mean, I don't know why you'd want to, but you could be using <laughs> Facebook or WhatsApp for your payments <laughs> in the future. Um, so you know that that's a very interesting development. We're watching to see what kind of disruption that's going to cause over the next few years.
0: Yeah, fast changing space for sure. Now you, you you mentioned banks, and you know you and I have have talked a bit recently about. Uh, what we were calling just app based banks, uh, just this new evolution mobile banking and and, uh, and it's just kind of how money is moving around these days. And there are some companies over there that are, are, are similar to PayPal and Square uh, that, that we're obviously more familiar with here. but talk a little bit about these app based banks. I think there were three companies that uh, we were talking about in specific, right?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there's been a big change in terms of uh, how people are using payment cards. And one of the rise, one of the things that's been co- caused that is the rise of what's called app is These app-based banks are what's called challenger banks. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're app-based, no brick-and-mortar locations. And the real big appeal to customers is that they've been built from the ground up with a real focus on customer experience, which is something that I think traditional banks have been very slow to adopt, too. So, um, the biggest player in the space at the moment is a company called Revolute. Uh, they've got over 2 million customers Largely focused in the U.K. and Ireland, but expanding across Europe. And they just offer really a prepaid debit card on which you can have have multiple accounts and you can have them in different currencies. And kind of through a single bank, you can monitor your spending. You can instantly transfer funds to friends, kind of very similar to what them and the Cash App is doing in the U.S. But you can also kind of take out loans and insurance and, and change your money as different currencies very easily. Um, so they're very popular, particularly among people who work and travel a lot for work. Um, they've also recently announced they're expanding into wealth management. So they're looking to get a brokerage functionality set up, possibly offering free trading in a manner similar to like Robinhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the biggest by far. You've also got a company called N26. They're a German-based company. It's a very similar offering, but they're actually a licensed bank. Uh, Revolutor just kind of in the process of becoming licensed. And they're going to launch in the U.S. next year. So uh, I'll be keeping an eye out for them. And then finally, the third big player is a company called Monzo, and again, it's very similar services, all app based, and very much focused on delivering great uh, user experience. So
0: remind me again, real quick, those names again. You said it was the first one was Revolut, is that right?
1: Revolut N twenty six, just the the letter N twenty six, and Monzo M O N Z O.
0: And are any of those publicly traded today?
1: None are publicly traded. Revolut's the biggest in terms of valuation. I think the last time I checked, they were looking at a two billion dollar valuation. So it'd be exciting to see whether they start looking to IPO anytime in the future.
0: Yeah, what are your thoughts there? You feel like there's a chance one or all of them would, or are they uh, perhaps going to try to take a little bit more of the path that Stripe has taken uh, to 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 grow?
1: I mean, it's so hard to tell in this environment, isn't it? There's there's, there's so much private capital running around, especially yeah. in the payment space. So yeah, you I mean you look at a company like Stripe getting a twenty billion dollar valuation, still no signs of an IPO. You wonder how long these companies are going to just keep. Plugging away at the private markets until, and then we'll see what happens later on down the line.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we talk about that a lot. Like, I mean, on the one hand, it's neat when you see these companies go public, but on the other hand, you can understand why they don't because, I mean, all of a sudden you're really thrown into this. Public forum, and and you're just under the scrutiny of Wall Street and retail investors, and us, and every every bit of financial media under the sun. I and it, and it's just it's it's more difficult to live life as a public company. So I could certainly understand why these companies would uh, want to put that off for as long as they could. Uh, oh, yeah, now, you you were recently in London for six months, and and we were talking about this a few weeks ago. About how the 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 system over the banking and payment system over there is evolving so quickly. Talk a little bit about your time in London and and how what you saw there, how that landscape is looking, how it's changing. I mean, some similarities perhaps to what we're doing here, some differences. Uh, Talk talk a little bit more about that, please.
1: Yeah, well, uh, certainly the biggest changes I've seen uh, for people in in their everyday lives is centered around the move to contactless payments. Um, And that's taken hold very rapidly across Europe, uh, particularly in the UK and Ireland. And, you know, I used to travel to London quite regularly about 10 years ago. And uh, one of my lasting memories was uh, getting a train into the centre of London and being met with this sort of total bedlam at Victoria Station or Liverpool Street Station with people queuing to buy tickets for the London Underground, uh, which, of course, is the main mode of transportation in that city. And yeah, six six months ago, I went back to London was the first time in a while, and and that's all changed rather dramatically with the introduction of contactless. You know, now you've got a kind of no train tickets, no queuing, in that kind of sense. You kind of simply tap your payments card on a reader as you go through the turnstiles, and the payment is automatically taken out of your account, um, depending on where you tapped on and where you tapped off. So, so really, th- that that change was quite dramatic, and. I think you're seeing something of a big jump forward, uh, something that you've been talking about for quite a long time, you know, the war on cash. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> there's, Yeah, your favorite topic. Um, there's, there's plenty of London coffee shops and bars now and even even kind of news agents on the side of the street that are just flat out refusing to take cash because it's so much simpler from them for an operation standpoint, you know, just in terms of accounting and even in terms of security, just to have everything automated through contactless payments uh, so you know, I mean, that was a big shock to me. And I think if you can implement those kind of systems in a city the size of London, it really shows that it can be done anywhere.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of technology, right? Is it? I mean, it it, it brings it, it brings that convenience everywhere. I mean, it's extremely scalable. I think that the, that contactless payments, I guess, it's pretty similar to what we do here in DC with our metro system. I mean, you have a what's what's called your your metro card, and you just load money onto it, but you just go in and out of the uh, gates by just tapping that card on the little sensor and, and you tap in where you tap in, you tap out where you tap out and it tells you how much your fare was and just deducts that. And then you, you need to reload your card every once in a while. But it sounds like to me, perhaps, what you're talking about in London, that you're, you're actually using your payment card, whether it's a Visa or a MasterCard or otherwise. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, in, in London, they had they had a Metro card system. It was the the Oyster card system. And, and similar to what you, you were describing there, you, you top it up you put $30 or whatever onto it and you, you uh wear it down as you travel but now that's that's I mean the cards are still there but I don't see anyone using them anymore. Hmm. People are just tapping their usual debit card or their credit card onto the machines and it's all done through that which is great for a city that has uh, so many inbound travelers and tourists, you know they don't have to queue up and get these cards that are probably going to run out or probably not going to use the full amount on.
0: Yeah, I think that that just seems, it seems to save a step and you don't have to deal with that extra part of the transaction. I think that uh, that's a smart thing. Um, so hey you know our, our listeners love stock ideas, Rory. everybody loves stock ideas, right? Uh, what names are you guys kicking around over at Rubicoin these days? I know we have a very similar investing style. Um, what, what names in the in the financial space do you guys have on your radar here uh, these days?
1: Well, yeah. Obviously, I mean, obviously, we're big fans of PayPal and Mastercard. I know you talk about those companies pretty regularly. Uh, we're very bullish on both of those. I think the culture of innovation at in both those businesses means that they're well deserving of the kind of premium valuations they typically trade at. Um, but another company we're, we're very bullish on long term is uh, Markel. Oh yeah, the specialty insurer, often referred to as Baby Berkshire. Um, We're big fans of Tom Gaynor, their chief investment officer and co-CEO now, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Love his investing philosophy. I know he was interviewed by uh, your Tom, Tom Gardner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Fool uh, fans will be uh, familiar with him. Um, And I think already he's beating the market by about 2% every year on average. Um, So, you know, that's a great person to be managing your money for you. Uh, We really like his long-term thinking philosophy. It really rhymes with what we're trying to do here at Rubicoin. Um, now, saying that, I mean the current economic climate has been very good to Markel, and uh, we know that's not going to last forever. But I think if you've got a good long-term outlook, you can you can keep a cool head in times of volatility. Markel is a great holding. Yeah. Um, another business that that wouldn't normally be considered a financial company, but I think it's moving more and more into the finance space uh, is what I'm very fond of is Mercado Libre. Oh yeah. Uh, They started off as the Latin American eBay, uh, but now very much focused on building out their payment system, Mercado Pago. Um, I think if you look at the market opportunity there, I think there's plenty to be excited about. You've got uh, e-commerce accounting for only about 2.4% of retail versus 8.6% in the U.S. Uh, Latin America also has a high non-banked population. It's down in around the mid-60% in some countries compared to like 90% in North America. So I think there's a big opportunity for those companies, company with the with the kind of brand brand awareness as Mercado Libre, to capture significant market and share as the region catches up in terms of things like internet adoption, and just a broad move away from cash. Yeah. Yep. And and then finally, finally, a company that's been on our watch list for quite a while, we haven't really pulled the trigger on just yet, has been the CME Group, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And um, that's just a business we really admire in terms of the way they've diversified the revenue stream, streams through acquisition. Uh, it's a high margin business, got a nice wide economic mode and um, terrific management. It's probably just sitting a bit richly valued for our taste at the moment. But on any pullback, we'd love to get involved with that business. And that,
0: that's that exchange. I mean, they, they facilitate uh, futures and commodity trading. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Futures, derivatives, yeah. In, uh, interest rates, uh, pretty much any kind of uh, financial contract you want to buy, you do through the CME report.
0: Yeah, we, we've we've talked about that one here a little bit now and then but it'd be worth definitely digging back into it and, hey I'm not gonna lie you know Markel I think we saw um, last week there were there was a, a little bit of a snafu there with the uh, with, with a little part of their business the, the cat uh, business that where uh, there's some questions in regard to reserves and whatnot the stock the stock got hit to the tune of about 10 percent in one day which you never ever see with with uh, Markel. Um, yeah, so I you know actually took advantage and bought a few more shares <laughs> when, when it took that little dip there. I think yeah, that's that's a great holding and, and certainly one that should resonate with all of our listeners and, and foolish investors because you can really you can really plan on holding on to it for for a long time. Um, hey, so Roy, tell us uh, tell our listeners how they can learn more about Rubicoin and, uh, and perhaps even uh, start following you guys.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you can, you can find us online at uh, rubicoin.com. Uh, you can download one of our two apps uh, on the App Store or the Android or the Google Play Store. Uh, just type in Rubicoin. You'll find both our uh, our apps on there. And um, yeah, follow us on Twitter. Um, we're usually talking about market news and uh, keeping up with what The fools doing on Twitter too. So loads of ways to keep, get in contact with us and try us out.
0: Yeah, and I will say personally as a user of... Rubicoin. I, I'm I'm subscribed to the Invest app. That the Learn app, which which as you mentioned, is is free, strictly educational. I've just I don't know that I've seen a slicker uh, mobile experience that can help educate new investors. Uh, I, I just don't know that I've seen a better app out there. And so the changes that you continue to make. Uh, and both of those apps are just just really great. Love what you guys are doing there, and of course, uh, listeners can follow Rory uh, on Twitter as well at Rory Karen. That's R O R Y C A R R O N. Uh, make sure to give him a follow because he's he's always talking stocks, and, and he's he's always got a good answer to some of those questions out there too. Rory Karen, thanks so much for joining us this week. Really appreciate thanks.
1: it. Thanks so much, Jason.
0: And Joining me in the studio this week, as always, is Certified Financial Planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going this week?
2: Pretty good. It's an uneventful week down here. It was was raining all weekend, so we weren't able to do much with the kids.
0: Yeah, that was contagious, Mm -hmm. man. It was raining up up here all weekend, (laughs) too. Though, I tell you, man, how about your Eagles? That was a big win last night, huh?
2: I know I was even able to stay up late enough to watch it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was a good game. I tell you, that was the, those guys are not out yet. You can't count them out. Um, Okay, so, before we get going here with our lead story, I want to remind listeners that support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Now, let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. And let's be clear here, interest rates have nowhere to go but up, ultimately. It's causing a lot of anxiety with folks, and while well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They call it the Power Buying Process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new, exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loan data in comparison to public data records, Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030 okay Matt we wanted to get into our uh, main story this week you know we were talking about this at the end of last week and uh, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with Robin Hood you and I really wanted to to jump right into this Robin Hood story and and uh, kick this around a little bit and I want to get your take here because you look at Robinhood what that is today an OFI stock trading app they're talking about rolling out some traditional bank uh, banking services, right? I think they were promising a three percent interest rate on deposits, talking about checking and savings, and it essentially sounded like they were making a lot of promises based on this uh, concept of a no-risk type of account for checking and savings. This is expanding their offering; offerings becoming more things to more people, I guess. Uh, but but we've even seen since then some pullback because there are some concerns there in regard to. Uh, federal deposit insurance, uh, and and even the SIPC. Talk to me a little bit about this, and into our to our listeners, what's Robinhood doing here, and should we be excited about this or concerned?
2: Well, I mean, <clears throat> for starters, I'd say that I love the idea of Robinhood's business, um, the fact that investing should be free, that, um, that you know the banks shouldn't be the ones making all the money, that it, that the bulk of the yield should go to savers. But having said that, at the end of the day, first of all, a business needs to make money. So I have to wonder how sustainable this is. And the reason that I bring that up is now that we find out that these so-called savings and checking accounts are not FDIC insured, and it looks like not SIPC insured either because the SIPC said that we, don't, we never heard anything about this until Robinhood made the announcement. Um, that's... Concerning coming from a startup that has a business model that probably at this point isn't making any money, um, so first of the first point I want to make is on the open market right now with you know reputable banks like um, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, Synchrony Bank, you can find savings yields in excess of two percent pretty easily. So the trade-off between a, you know I think it was two point one five I saw earlier today the trade off between something like that and a 3% yield is not worth giving up FDIC or SIPC insurance over that's number 1 um if you're going to do that you might as well just buy high yield dividend stocks or something that's not guaranteed not to lose value right um, the second thing is startups don't always last so insurance of like an FDIC nature is so much more important in this case just because There's no guarantee that Robinhood's going to make it long-term at this point. This is not a Bank of America or Wells Fargo. If Wells Fargo, for example, came out and said, we have a 3% yielding savings product without FDIC insurance, but backed by the full credit of Wells Fargo, that's different than something that's being backed by a startup. So you know, a savings product is only as good as, one, the insurance that it has, and two, the company that's offering it. And while I love Robin Hood as a company, I'm a 3% yield in my mind does not justify just taking a leap of faith and giving them my savings.
0: Now, don't you feel like I mean to me the first thing that comes to mind is when I talk about like a checking account or a savings account, I mean a savings account is a little bit different, I guess, but really I mean, either way, these are not accounts that are meant to garner a lot in the way of interest. I mean, perhaps a savings account. Um. In in some instances, you know, I mean, obviously, everybody wants a bit of a higher savings uh, interest rate on their savings account. I mean, I would think checking uh, is is less important. But I've I've really tried to make the argument here for some time now that the savings account, as we know it, is almost dead and buried. I mean, I I think at this point before you start with a savings account, I would rather see someone open up like a brokerage account, just start investing on a dollar-cost average basis into the S&P 500. To me, that makes more sense, because over the long haul, you're going to get a better return than that 2 or 3% or whatever. And even if it's not necessarily guaranteed by the FDIC, uh, you know the chances of the S&P 500 going away are pretty slim.
2: Right. Well, in my mind, the whole the whole purpose that the average American would use a savings account these days, it's not for yield. It's for safety. It's where you would put your emergency fund, the money you can't afford to lose. So yes, it's nice to be able to extract a little bit of yield off that. Like if I have a $10,000 emergency fund, a 2% yield gives me an extra $200 a year. It could help my emergency savings keep up with inflation, for example, but it's not an investment vehicle. This is not where you would put money that you are planning to retire on in 30 years. Yeah. That's something that, like you said, I would much rather see people dollar-cost average into a, a brokerage account, a mutual fund, something, something of that nature, rather than trying to get every little teeny bit of yield out of a savings account with their long-term investment money.
0: And if you think about it, I mean, I, I would venture to guess that probably Robinhood's typical user skews a little bit younger probably not quite as sophisticated an investor. And I mean, I don't mean that, you know, as a pejorative. I mean, I'm just saying that they're younger and they just don't have as much exposure to the investing world. Um, probably not looking at having that big of a deposit base anyway. And so it's I think there can sometimes be a little bit of a disconnect if someone sees that 3%. But then doesn't you know doesn't quite do the math to actually understand exactly what that three percent might end up being at the end of the year. And if you you know you you see it and I see it. I mean, you look at your interest-bearing savings account, for example, where maybe you have five or ten thousand dollars in emergency funds there, and you see at the end of the year the amount of interest you've earned in that thing, and it's negligible. <laughs> I mean, it's it's inconsequential. And I mean that whether it's one, two, or three percent, it's going to essentially be uh, more or less meaningless. And I think we've seen a lot of data here recently that says that most people tool don't have that kind of a nest egg set aside for emergency funds. It sounds like a lot of people are having trouble uh, you know, putting that kind of, of savings uh, um, nest egg together. So, so that's another thing to consider. Now, I mean, I, I want to talk to you for a second here, just in regard to Robinhood's business, because I agree with you. I like the idea of what Robinhood stands for. And I want to get your opinion on really the sustainability or their their potential here. Because I, I looked at something like TD Ameritrade, and, and uh, looking through their 10K here recently, and over fiscal 2018, they ended the year with 11.5 million funded accounts. Now, that's up considerably thanks to the Scott Trade acquisition, but it's worth noting that TD Ameritrade and Scottrade are together now, and that, that was part of that there. But my point is, when you compare that 11.5 million funded accounts versus Robinhood, where there's a few hundred thousand, maybe, um, what kind of potential is there for Robinhood to make it on its own? Or do you see this as a startup that ultimately gets taken out by a bigger player? Um, enrolled into their family?
2: Well, <clears throat> I see them making it long term, but not necessarily in their current form. Like I said, at the end of the day, a business needs to make money. Now, I could see their platform getting wildly popular. It already is getting very popular, especially as you said, among the younger crowd. But they need to figure out a way to really monetize their customers, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, there's not that much money in free stock trading. They're making a little <laughs> bit of money off. Off certain like margin interest, for example, um, and there's not a lot of money in giving a three percent savings yield when the best you can get off the treasury isn't even three percent. Yep. So, and I get that they're making money in certain ways um, with the checking accounts. They said they're going to make money off uh, swipe fees from debit cards, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're uh, splitting the revenue with Mastercard. They have an agreement, um, but that's not a ton of money, and that's not enough to really sustain this as a big business. So, I think eventually I see them getting acquired. I don't see them surviving in their current form without figuring out a better way to monetize their customers. Um, the latest startup valuation for them is somewhere in the five to six billion dollar range. I have trouble arriving at that number to put it mildly, <laughs> um, without a you know a way that they're gonna earn. You need a startup's valuation. You need to be able to eventually see a path. Where they're earning enough that that valuation makes sense, yeah. And right now, I just can't get there with Robinhood,
0: yeah. And I mean, that's worth uh, that's worth noting too because we, we hear at least there's news of a potential Robinhood IPO at some point, and you can be sure that if there is one, that we'll be covering it. Uh, but typically, the finance space, I mean, with the exception of some of these fintech names like Square, uh, even PayPal to an extent, I mean, they can garner some loftier valuations because of the potential that's out there, but for the most part. You know these these financials are judged on the earnings that they bring in, the return on the assets that they hold. They're fairly transparent in, in understanding the valuations, at least from that perspective. Robinhood, you'd certainly have to take a bigger leap, um, especially knowing that it's not profitable. I'm not necessarily sure what the top line revenue for that company is today. Do you know? Is there an advertising component to that business? Do they make any of their money from advertising?
2: Um, I. Don't know, you know, dollars and like the figures, but they have to be monetizing advertising in some way. Yeah. Um I would I would think they're spending more on advertising than they are making right now. But that's, that's just kinda I, I I'm not sure the exact figures, but I think they're that's one of the kind of small revenue streams they have coming in.
0: Yeah, I think you're probably right. They're probably spending more on advertising than they're making on it. Uh, regardless, definitely want to keep an eye on. Certainly, we'll be watching it into 2019. A neat story, um, and and thanks for all all that uh, all that you've done to look into that, Matt. And I know our listeners appreciate it too. Now we want to tap into Twitter as we do every week. And Matt, I wanted to do a little bit uh, something a little bit different this week. Um, you sent out a tweet yesterday, Sunday morning. I saw this tweet, and I thought it was. Great. I voted, of course, and a lot of people voted. It turns out almost 5,000 people voted. Um, And the question that you asked, this was the Sunday personal finance poll you asked, that TMF math guy, you said, do you feel like you're on track to have enough retirement savings? Barely cut and dry question. And and I like the choices that you had there to vote for. You had, absolutely confident, I'll probably have enough, I'm a little worried and I'm in panic mode. Now, the thing that stood out to me the most here is that when we look at those last two, I'm a little worried and I'm in panic mode, of the 4,700-plus votes we got, close to 40% accounted for those two suggestions, or those two ideas right there, I'm a little worried or I'm in panic mode. So, there are plenty of people out there who feel confident they'll have enough or they feel pretty good about it. But there was close to 40% of people out there that are either a little bit worried or they are in full-blown panic mode. And and it stood out to, to us both as uh, perhaps an opportunity for you as as a financial planner. I mean, this is what you do. Uh, maybe you'd have a couple of words of wisdom for these folks who are feeling a little bit uh, a little bit on edge here, especially as we get ready to kick off a new year.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so, I'm um- pretty confident that most of the votes I received were as a direct result of you tweeting this out on the Motley Fool's <laughs> feed. Well,
0: that's OK. I mean, it's, it's still the same audience, right? It's just more followers well, on that main feed.
2: <laughs> sure. Well, the reason I'm saying this is that this is actually the the, the fact that 38 percent of the people said that they're either a little worried or in panic mode is especially concerning because most of these are Motley people who follow the Motley Fool. So these are people who are interested in investing. Yeah, in Yeah,
0: that's a good point.
2: So I would say that this actually skews toward the more prepared crowd. (laughs) Um, So that's one one thing that kind of concerns me. Um, And just kind of reading through some of the comments of why people are a little worried. Um, One person said, if I could find the tweet, that uh, this was – he's talking about in the UK, but I'm pretty sure the same thing applies to the US – said that a lot of people's retirement plan used to be owning a home was their big part of it which I think to some degree was true in the U.S. more so up until recently as well. Yeah. And he said because of student loans, a lot of people can't afford to buy houses till later, so they're not starting to build equity till later in life and therefore can't count on their home equity as retirement savings anymore, which I think is also a concern in the U.S. Um, but a lot of the comments just – well, some people were just panicking for the sake of panicking, it <laughs> sounded like. But some definitely had good points. Um, One person, this is Carmichael Reed, at Carmichael Reed, uh, tweeted that I'm confidently panicking, (laughs) which was my favorite response. Um, And he said that he is debt-free now, but hasn't really saved yet. He said, I am debt-free, now time to climb Mount Money. And that's also a very popular strategy these days, especially with the student loan debt um, overhanging over people's heads. Is that it takes them till you know age 35 or 40 before they're out of debt and confident to start saving. So then it becomes kind of panic mode. Um I mean, my advice there is to, you know, every little bit helps. A lot of people say I don't have thousands of dollars to put away, so I don't have money to invest. You'd be surprised how much twenty-five or fifty dollars out of every paycheck when you're in your twenties can add up over time. Yeah. So if you're if you're feeling burdened with student loan debt, like every little bit helps. You don't need a ton. Um, through, you can find commission-free ETFs with most online brokers. Uh, A lot of mutual funds waive their minimum investment if you agree to a periodic investment. So there are a lot of ways to start investing with very little money. Um, Don't underestimate the long-term potential of relatively small amounts is kind of what I can say. Um, And another thing, um, don't pay attention to all this market noise. A lot of people when the market's doing what it's doing now get afraid to invest. Yep. Um uh Bradley Smith uh replied to my tweet at at bway79. Hard to be absolutely confident with all the market factors and unpredictable environment. But I'm sticking to my plan and adapt when situations are presented. And I thought that was perhaps the best answer to this entire poll. Um uh, it's it's impossible to be absolutely confident that you're going to have enough retirement savings, you know, unless you're outstandingly wealthy, <laughs> but just you, you do the best you can. You want to put the odds in your favor by dollar cost averaging into investments. Like you said earlier, um, by gradually investing over time, by using time to your advantage, um, things like that can put the the probabilities in your favor. So while you can, can't really be absolutely confident, um, you can raise your confidence level pretty high by just doing those few things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think those are those are those are a lot of good words there. And, and um, you know, the one thing that stands out to me, and I remember the feeling vividly, is just when when you're younger, you don't think about that advantage of time. I mean, you just don't think you're not geared to think about when you're 50. You know, when you're 22 years old and getting out of college, and you're trying to figure out what you want to do, the first thing on your mind is not, well, I need to make sure I'm prepared when I'm 50 or 60. And uh, so. Consequently, a lot of people get out there, they start working, they do whatever they're doing, and, and, and they don't necessarily prioritize saving. I think I would just say, whatever you're doing as far as work goes, when you get that job, go ahead and sign up for that retirement plan offering if they have it. Have that money automatically deducted from your paycheck, because it's easy to sit there and say, I don't make enough, and, and, and to just go ahead and opt out of it. But, but really, you can adapt your budget. What you're actually bringing in every week, every two weeks, and if you can go ahead and sign up for that automatic deduction, I think that automatic deduction is really powerful, um, and, and you can you can alter your behavior a little bit to accommodate it. And, and over the course of twenty and thirty years, it can make a profound difference. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's well, it's easier said than done.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, saving for retirement is a It's a big undertaking if you want to get to the point where you're really financially comfortable later in life. But it can be done, and it's a lot easier to do the earlier you start. Your money will never have the power it does right now. So keep that in mind every time you get a little bit of extra money on the side, even if it's, like I said, 20 bucks, 50 bucks at a time.
0: Absolutely. And. For, uh, for listeners, you can always reach out to us via email at industryfocus at fool.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. Always happy to answer your questions or just, you know, re- read your take on things. Uh, you know, perspective is, is a wonderful thing and everyone's got it. Uh, okay, Matt, as always, let's wrap this week up with One to Watch. And Matt, it sounds like you're taking this in a little bit of a direct, a different direction this week. You've got more than one to watch. I mean, our listeners are getting a little bit more bang for their buck here.
2: Well, this is the financial sector show, and the financial (laughs) sector has been absolutely hammered over the past few weeks. So there are—I wish I could, you know, spend 20 minutes talking about all the stocks (laughs) I want to buy right now, but I'm going to narrow it down to just two. Um, The first one, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, has climbed to the top of my watch list. Uh, The reason being that the Berkshire's new buyback plan says that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have to agree that the stock is trading at well below its intrinsic value to be able to buy back shares. Well, they did that at a price of $207 for each B share. Um, right now, as of this morning, Berkshire's under $200. So wow. if they thought Berkshire was well below its intrinsic value at $207, at $198 or whatever it is right now, it looks like a steal. So that's number one. Number two, I have to I have to say Goldman Sachs again, just because the news came out this morning that the um, they were worried about Malaysia fight doing taking legal action against them. Well, that happened this morning in relation to a bond fund that went bad a few years ago, and the stock just took another leg down. It's in the upper one sixties. It's trading for about fifteen percent less than tangible book right now, which is very cheap for any bank. So. I have to re-recommend you take a look at Goldman Sachs now. Hopefully, one of these days, I'll be able to shut up about it long enough to <laughs> actually buy some. But I, I love a lot of the bank stocks right now, but those two financial sector uh, stocks, Berkshire Hathaway and Goldman Sachs, have have climbed to the top of my list recently.
0: OK, two good ideas there. I'm going to go with one this week. I'm going to go with a name that everybody probably is familiar with, uh, but Markel Insurance. Uh, recently, we saw a, a really a, just a very unusual sell-off in the stock. It was down around ten percent. Um, I think it was last Friday, maybe it was uh, or a Friday a week ago. But but it was in in regard to. Um, inquiries into their Markel-Catco business. In other words, the the catastrophic side of the business is Markel-Catco investment management um, business, which is focused on reinsurance uh, retrocession, which is essentially a type of insurance where a reinsurance company takes on part of the risk assumed by another reinsurance company. Um, There were some concerns in regard to the reserves. Um, that were being set aside for this cat business. and And that is important, of course, setting aside reserves is is a name of the game in in insurance. Um, but I, I do feel like this was a bit of an overreaction on the part of the market. and the reason why, ultimately is because when you look at this Markel um, catco investment management side of the business, and that's what this investigation is regarding. No other part of the business that was only responsible for $28.7 million of the $7.5 billion in revenue that Markel generated over this past year. So, really, it's a drop in the bucket. And I think that was the ultimate point I was trying to make. It's not that it's not something that shouldn't be attended to or investors shouldn't at least be aware of, but I feel like that 10% sell-off there was a bit more than what reality should should ultimately uh, how reality should ultimately play out on this on this stock and this business? It's still a very good business. The stock is trading at about one and a half times book value today, maybe a little bit on the higher side. Um, but I do think it's it's the type of business that you can plan on holding for the next ten to twenty years. Um, I personally full full transparency here, Matt, I bought a few more shares myself on the day of that dip, so um, I felt like it was a good opportunity to add to that position. And I think that. Uh, that our, our financial listeners would would uh, benefit taking another look at that one. Um, so, one one quick housekeeping note here this is, uh, obviously, coming to the end of the year here, holiday season, we will be off next week. The financial show will be off next Monday for the holiday season. But do stay tuned for our year-end holiday shows. We've got a, a series set up for you for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, December 26th, 27th, and 28th. Uh, we all got in the studio here and had a little fun talking about the year that was and the year that's coming. Uh, so, so be on the lookout for those. Uh, Matt, as always, it's great to talk with you, buddy. I'm, I'm always uh, always enjoying having you, having you join me on Skype here and, and talk to our listeners. I hope you have a great holiday!
2: Same to you! Always great to be here! Alright. As
0: always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Matt Frankel and Rory Karen, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening and full on.